the Savior's powerful promise, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you, became a reality to me as I sat in the National Auditorium in Mexico City a few weeks ago and looked out upon the vast throng of 16,000 faithful saints. Some had borrowed money, mortgaged possessions, traveled for days, and made many sacrifices unknown to us that they might attend this great area conference. Our members had come to see a living prophet, to see him face to face, to hear his voice, to hear his words of assurance and admonition, and to personally witness the presidency of the kingdom of God on the earth. They came in great numbers. They saw the prophet, and they felt of the comforting spirit of the Lord. The saints gathered here had heard the truth and had believed. I thought of the great significance of the full-time missionary service of your sons and daughters who join in heart and voice in humble meetings throughout the world as they stand in groups and sing, Ye elders of Israel, come join now with me and seek out the righteous where'er they may be. We'll gather the wheat from the midst of the tares and bring them from bondage, from sorrow and snares. We have been a missionary church from the beginning. I thank the Lord that we will always be a missionary church. The first conversions of this dispensation came through the humble testimony of the Prophet Joseph Smith. His first efforts were directed first to those he loved most. He converted his father, his mother, his brothers and sisters, he converted his wife, his neighbors, then Martin Harris, and the schoolteacher Oliver Cowdery, as well as the Whitmer family. They all felt of the truth and power of his testimony. On Sunday, April 11, 1830, Oliver Cowdery preached the first public discourse that was delivered by any of our number, wrote the Prophet Joseph Smith. Then it was recorded that six were baptized following the service. Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery, under divine instruction, began to preach, teach, exhort, expound, and baptize, and to set the pattern for our modern missionary service. And now, 140 years later, we see the fruits of missionary efforts in our own families, in our wards, our branches, and, of course, in this great tabernacle today. The gospel is the hope and, and everlasting salvation for all mankind. The missionary system must be perpetuated by us. Our young men and women should be reared under the loving guidance and influence of a good home, a home where the blessing of a mission is a, par is a part of his life's goal a home where plans for his future mission become part of his life, like having a simple piggy bank on the shelf in the kitchen marked for Johnny's mission, a reminder to him of his dream. 
Hollywood would never be able to produce the thrilling stories, the real-life dramas, the diaries, the letters home, the testimonies locked in the hearts that have resulted from following the Savior's instructions to his people. Go ye therefore to all nations and teach them and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. The, exp the Savior explained what might happen to some of our efforts when he said, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trodden down, and some fell upon a rock, and it withered away. And others fell on good ground and sprang up and bare fruit a hundredfold. Imagine the quantity of seed planted over the years by the tens of thousands of missionaries, some seeds to lie dormant for years and others to spring forth immediately. Some years ago, such a precious seed was planted in fertile soil in Germany. Robert Frederick Leopold. His wife and daughters lived in a small city in central Germany. Robert, a house painter, provided a moderate living for his family. On Sunday, while on her way to the Protestant church, Robert's wife was approached by Mormon missionaries who invited her to attend sacrament meeting. She attended and was impressed. After subsequent visits by the missionaries, she was baptized and became active in the church. But from the moment of his wife's baptism, her husband grew in animosity and bitterness towards the church. Their daughters were also baptized, <clears throat> resulting in more bitterness. Robert could bear the Mormons no longer. He moved his family from Germany to Veracruz, Mexico, and then on to Porto Alegre, Brazil. And as soon as they were settled, Robert's wife continued to spread the, the news of the gospel. She was causing excitement in Brazil, for the doctrine she preached was completely new. Bitterness filled Robert. He hated the Mormons. He prevented his children from going to public school for fear they would learn to read and would thus be further indoctrinated with Mormon literature. Finally, in desperation, he took his family away from civilization to the interior of Brazil. They settled in the remote, peaceful valley of Ipomea, in the state of Santa Catarina. Filled with the burning testimony and a desire to share the good news, Robert's faithful wife wrote to the mission president in Germany, who in turn referred her to the Argentine mission president. She asked that he visit Brazil. President Reinhold Stoff visited Brazil in 1927 and reported that much success could be realized among the German-speaking people of Brazil. From the tiny seeds sown by the missionaries in Germany and carried across the Atlantic, the First Presidency established a mission in Brazil in February 1935. The work now flourishes. Hundreds, then thousands, heard the good news. Now there are four missions in Brazil and four stakes of Zion. But even Robert Frederick, the once bitter husband and father, was eventually touched by the seed of truth. For at the age of 83, he was carried in his wooden rocking chair to the nearby river Rio de Pache, 
and baptized a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. How could one ever describe the deep abiding love of Robert's faithful wife for the gospel and for her family? Mothers and fathers need to plant the seeds of the gospel firmly in the hearts of their children to create in them a desire to serve and also to know how to serve. Seeds of hard work, seeds of courtesy, and seeds of thrift. Then deep in their hearts, their sons and daughters need to have planted the more valuable seeds of spirituality. The seed of cleanliness, the seed of love, the seed of virtue. The seed of courage, the courage such as Paul had when he stood in bonds before Agrippa and stretched forth his hands and told of his conversion and said, I am not mad, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. The seed of obedience, which is the first law of the gospel and which has exemplified, was exemplified by the Savior who is obedient in all things. Your sons will go out as did the Savior, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. Your sons will assist in healing those with sickness of the mind and with discouragement, which afflict this modern society by changing their outlook on life, by lifting the broken hearts from the darkness of despair, by bringing them to Christ. Through missionary service, new converts receive great blessings. But the missionary also has his life changed. I met one of our Scottish missionaries a few weeks ago at a state conference in the East. He told me of his marriage and church activity since returning home, and then he said, Do you remember what you told me when I was released from my mission? And then I recalled that this elder was from a rural cowboy town in Idaho. And I had asked him what he was going to do when he returned home, and he said, Just go back home. I can't afford to go to college. And then he told me that he had some fear that the old gang would be waiting for him and that he might drift back into some of his old habits. He had become one of our leaders, the kind of missionary you could trust with any assignment. I advised him to go back home to invite his friends to come to the sacrament meeting, the sacrament meeting where he was to make his report, and then for them to hear the change that had come into his life. I then counseled him, spend some time with your parents and then take the bus, first bus out of town. A way will be opened up for you to get into college and develop the newly found talent you discovered in the mission field. And as I stood and looked upon this young man at that state conference, I saw that the rough stone was now polished and would continue to change lives for good. I thank the Lord for our missionary service. It is a divine program. I thank the Lord for our young men and women who represent him before the world in helping build Zion and in so doing developing their own spiritual knowledge. May our parents always instill in their sons a desire to go on a mission. May God bless our missionaries as promised by President John Taylor when he said, He is commissioned of the great Jehovah to bear a message, and God has promised to sustain him. 
his faithful elders, and he always will. May this be our lot in our families. May your sons respond to the great call that should be theirs. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My beloved brothers and sisters and friends, it has been a sublime and moving experience to participate in sustaining President Lee and his counselors yesterday morning as the new First Presidency of the Church, and I humbly entreat the same spirit to sustain me for these very few moments while I respond. Since President Lee notified me of my call in the most moving and touching experience of my life last Thursday morning, there have come to me the most solemn broodings that can come to a human soul. I have asked myself a hundred times, why me? because it is beyond my understanding that I should be asked to join these great brethren of the general authorities, all of whom I hold in such great esteem. I have prayed that God would have mercy on me because of my weakness and shortcomings, and as long as I remember, I have had a personal witness of the divinity of Jesus Christ and of his Church. And it has always been easy for me to believe and to testify. And I have concluded that if there is one amongst all of the general authorities who is the weakest and the least qualified, then I can fill that position. Also, because I served in Brazil on a mission, I'm the only one that speaks Portuguese. With all my heart, I want to thank Ruth Wright Faust for letting me share her life with me and giving me the hope that we can share eternity together. She is more than a wife and a sweetheart because she has become part of my very being. With all my heart, I want my children to know that I cannot succeed in this calling unless I also succeed as their father, and that they will always be paramount in my life. No man ever had a better father than did I, and I hope that I have always honored his good name. My widowed mother is among you of the television audience, and I am sure that she weeps. Many times in my childhood I have happened upon her on her knees praying for her five sons, and I wish to tell her that this son continues to need her faith and prayers. I realize that my life for me and my mine can never and should never be the same. For 22 years and until last Thursday morning I have been a lawyer. And since then, I've been trying to repent. (laughs) 
Now I shall try to become one of the fishers and help these brethren cast forth and draw in the nets of eternal life. And I should like to say that if anyone has ever been offended by anything I have ever done in my church, professional or political life, I humbly ask their forgiveness. I mentioned to a friend of mine who knew of this call that those who know me will say, Surely James Faust was called of the Lord because no one else would have called him. I wish President Lee to know that I sustain him, and he who President Lee represents with all of my devotion and all of my heart and all of my being. Under his hands I was ordained a bishop, and by him called to the stake presidency, and he has been for me all my adult life a great and beloved teacher and exemplar of all that is noble and good. President Tanner has been like a father to me, ever available, always helpful, kind, considerate, and he knows how much love and respect I have for him. President Romney has, as you know, special qualities of inspiration and wisdom and has been a special friend and confidant, and my respect and honor for him knows no bounds. I would also like to mention the profound influence that President Moore and President Ma Brown have also had on my life. These are and have been the truly great men of the earth. I express appreciation to all the host of people who have blessed my life, from those from whom I have learned, my missionary companions those with whom I served in bishoprics, high councils, state presidencies, and my beloved friends of the regional representatives of the Twelve. Now, as a humble follower of the Divine Master, I bear witness to the divinity of him as the Christ and the Savior of the world and of his Church as established in these days, now headed by President Harold B. Lee, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My dear brothers and sisters, I don't know why I should be shaking as I am. I'm among friends. I know that no one loves me more than these brethren that are sitting before you. I love them. They've all visited my home and stayed with us and left their blessings. When President Lee called me to be a stake president about 16 years ago, I remember on the way home he said, President Stone, I want you to prepare now for the day when you'll be released. And I assured him that I was ready any time he wanted to release me. <laughs> But you know, this time when he called me the other day, he didn't say a word about that. I feel humble, grateful, and assure you and the brethren of my willingness to serve 
to devote my time, energy, and means for the upbuilding of the kingdom. The Savior, on one occasion, realizing the many temptations that we are faced with in this life, made this statement, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all else shall be added unto you. We've tried to live by that rule in our family. My sons, who have both been mission presidents, used to quote that to me when I was talking to them about the future of their lives. Now I want you all to remember the program of prospective elders, and I'm going to tell you why. I was a prospective elder when I met my wife in Blackfoot, Idaho. And after I'd courted her for some time and I decided that she was the girl, she let me know in no uncertain terms that I had to shape up. And I think we ought to bring these sisters in as a part of the prospective elders program. (laughs) I'm grateful for my wife. It was her birthday yesterday, the day that I was sustained as a general authority. I'd like to testify to you that the greatest happiness that has come into our lives has been when we've been living the gospel and serving the Master. And I have to tell you just a little story. I hope I won't infringe on time. But a few years ago, roughly 25, I was starting a new business. I was having difficulty in getting it into black figures. I don't like to operate in the red. And I went to my Heavenly Father on bended knees and made a covenant with him that if he would bless me with inspiration and guidance to make that business successful, that I would serve him and I would be liberal with my time and means for the upbuilding of the kingdom. And I do that again today, my brothers and sisters. The Lord did bless us abundantly. And I now pledge to President Lee and President Tanner and President Romney and all these brethren that I shall put forth my best efforts to fulfill this new assignment. I love the Lord, and I want to serve him. I remember the day that President Lee again, President Brown, was at the conference and I was put in state president. President Lee quoted this Scripture. It's always stuck in my mind, and I'd like to quote it to you because it's one of my favorites. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not on thine own understanding. In all thy ways follow him, and he shall direct thy paths. This I pray for humbly this day, and I do it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My dear brothers and sisters, I come before you with a humble heart and I think rejoice with you in the marvelous spirit of this conference. I'm grateful for the blessings of this day. I'm thankful for my knowledge and testimony that God lives and that through the atoning sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 
we may enjoy eternal life as we are obedient to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. We are blessed to be living in this dispensation when the gospel, the church, and the priesthood, which is the power to act in the name of God, have been restored through the instrumentality of the prophet Joseph Smith, one of the great leaders of all time. And today, in a world where there are millions of God's children who are frustrated and discouraged and are looking for an explanation of life, we are blessed to be led and guided by another prophet, our beloved President Harold B. Lee. May the Lord bless and sustain him. In considering the purpose of life, the prophet Joseph Smith said, Happiness is the object and design of our existence, and will be the end thereof if we pursue the path that leads to it. And this path is virtue, uprightness, faithfulness, holiness, and keeping all of the commandments of God. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in his life set the pattern for us to follow in our quest for this eternal joy and happiness. And he admonished his disciples to be perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. There is tremendous power in focusing upon an ideal. People are inclined to become like those that they admire. And as we increase our knowledge and love of the Savior and indicate our willingness to do his will, we necessarily become more perfect and like him. Some of the Savior's greatest attributes and most profound teachings are to be found in the incidents immediately preceding his crucifixion. After the Last Supper, Jesus and the eleven apostles left the house in which they had eaten and walked to the olive grove known as Gethsemane on the slope of Mount Olivet. Jesus apparently frequented this grove or garden when he desired privacy for prayer and meditation. He left eight of the apostles near the entrance with the suggestion, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. Peter, James, and John accompanied the Savior further, and then saith he unto them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. The life of the Savior is replete with instances where he applied the principle of thy will be done, not mine. And Christ's ability to apply this great principle in his life made it possible for him to become perfect. As we apply thy will be done, not mine, in our lives, we will likewise move towards perfection and true happiness. But how can we know God's will in order to make our life conform? The Savior said, If ye love me, keep my commandments. Live so that the Holy Ghost will guide and direct you. 
Seek to grow in knowledge, wisdom, and understanding by continuous study and contemplation of the words of Christ and those whom God has appointed to teach and instruct us. And pray always, remembering the promise given to us, Draw near unto me, and I will draw near unto you. As we live in this type of environment, we will know God's will and have the desire and courage to conform. This doctrine or philosophy requires one to deeply love the Lord and have great faith in his judgment. Let me illustrate. In the prayer offered by the Prophet Joseph Smith at the dedication of the Curtain Temple, which prayer was given to him by revelation, he said, Help thy servants to say with thy grace, assisting them, Thy will be done, O Lord, and not ours. In the fall of 1834, the prophet was busily engaged in preparing for the School of the Prophets and wrote in his diary, No month ever found me more busily engaged than November. But as my life consisted of activity and unyielding exertions, I made this my rule. When the Lord commands, do it. Here again is evidence the spirit of thy will be done. Joseph Smith's life exemplifies this great principle. President Brigham Young's feeling about this divine principle is recorded in a letter to Orson Spencer in June of 1848 when he said, The Lord's will is my will all the time. As he dictates, so I will perform. Some of you are converts to the Church. Did you find it difficult to accept baptism when you felt it would mean being estranged from your family or friends, losing the security of your social position, maybe even losing your job or employment? But in your heart you knew it was the will of God that you should accept Him and become a member of His Church, because the Holy Ghost had borne this witness to you. When you had the will to say, Not my will, but thy will be done, placing your trust in God and by your acceptance of baptism, showing your faith and humility, didn't you find that you had just opened the way for God to give you greater blessings than you had ever known before? This is the testimony of two wonderful young people I recently met in Mexico, Brother and Sister Alvarez. They told me that since they were baptized eight months ago, rather than the estrangement from family and friends they had feared, they were finding a new love and respect being given to them, besides all the wonderful new friends that they had found among their brothers and sisters in the Church. They had prospered materially, and above all, they had found a peace and nearness to their Heavenly Father that they have never known before. May I refer to two personal experiences? As a young man, I was offered an appointment to the United States Naval Academy. This was an honor and a real temptation. However, in my early life, I had definitely decided that I would like to go on a mission. And I could now see that if I accepted the Naval Academy appointment, I probably would not be able to serve as a missionary. 
After prayerful consideration, I declined the appointment, as I felt it was the will of the Lord that I go on a mission. Soon thereafter, I received a call to serve in the Eastern States Mission. I will be eternally grateful for the call I received, because it was in the mission field that I learned to love the gospel, learned the power of faith, and felt the happiness and peace that come when one is responsive to the whisperings of the Holy Spirit. The pattern I set in the mission field has been a guide to me throughout my life. My mission president, Brigham H. Roberts, in his letter of release to me, promised me that I would find new beginnings from time to time, even more missions. As I left the mission field, I prayed fervently and at length that this promise might be fulfilled. Twenty-four years later, it was partially fulfilled when I was called to be the stake mission president of the East Mill Creek State. At that time, Elder Gordon B. Hinckley was president of that stake. And also, at that time, President Harold B. Lee gave me a beautiful blessing as he set me apart. Four years later, it was further realized when I was called to preside over the Northwestern States Mission. And one of the choicest and most inspiring experiences of our lives was when Sister Richards and I spent approximately ten days with President and Sister Lee in touring our mission. As we have listened to missionaries bear their testimonies, many have told us how they put aside dreams and plans for school and careers and accepted a mission call. Others who have been called to important church assignments have set aside, to a large extent, their personal affairs to give the needed attention to the work of the Lord. And all have borne witness of the happiness and blessings they and their families have received. The strength and vitality of the Church is due, in my opinion, to a large extent to the willingness of its members to live the principle, Thy will be done, not mine. In 1959, when I received my call to preside over the Northwestern States Mission, it came in a most inconvenient time. But both Sister Richards and I felt that if the Lord wanted us to go then, we should go. Many of our friends, church members and non-members, indicated that they felt we were making a real sacrifice but we felt otherwise. And as President McKay set me apart, he promised me that it would be the happiest time of our lives. And it was, because our entire time was spent in serving our fellow men. And we remembered the words of King Benjamin, When ye are in the service of your fellow beings, ye are only in the service of your God. Why should we consider it a sacrifice to enjoy such happiness? growth and development. Again, I was grateful that my parents had taught me to live by the rule, Thy will be done, not mine. Applying this rule in our lives can mean never to turn down an opportunity to serve in building the kingdom when asked by one in authority. Our callings to serve in the Church, coming from an authorized agent of our Heavenly Father, can properly be construed to be the will of the Lord. In many other ways, 
To accept the will of the Lord is oftentimes most difficult, as is the case in the death of a loved one. Death is an important part of eternal life, yet we are never quite ready for the change. Not knowing when it will come, we properly fight to retain life for ourselves and for our loved ones. We pray for the sick and administer to the afflicted. We implore the Lord to heal and extend life, but all are not healed, even though great faith is manifested. However, God has given us a promise that though a loved one may die, yet he or she shall live again through the atonement and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The loss of loved ones is a difficult experience that builds great faith, courage, and humility, and we must all expect such experiences. To obtain the desired happiness on this earth and the world to come, we must steadfastly face trials and tribulations, regardless of the form they take, with the spirit, Thy will be done, not mine. The Savior again set the pattern in this respect. No martyr ever approached death with greater courage and dignity than did Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Undoubtedly, the greatest evidence of righteousness in a person is to accept Jesus Christ as our Savior and Redeemer without any qualifications. And an evidence of this is to live the doctrine, Thy will be done, not mine. In conclusion, let me again repeat the words of the Prophet Joseph Smith. Happiness is the object and design of our existence, and will be the end thereof if we pursue the path that leads to it. And this path is virtue, uprightness, faithfulness, holiness, and keeping all of the commandments of God. By loving the Lord, keeping his commandments, and serving our fellow beings, we are doing his will, and this will bring us great happiness and eternal life. I bear you this witness in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My brothers and sisters, I pray for the inspiration and strength and spirit of the Lord during the few minutes that I'm before you this afternoon. In a recent area general conference held in Mexico, President Harold B. Lee made this statement. The strength of the Church is not to be measured by the amount of money paid as tithing by faithful members, nor by the number of total membership of the Church or the number of church chapels and temple buildings. The real strength of the Church is to be measured by the individual testimonies to be found in the total membership of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. No matter what po position a person holds in this Church, there is one thing to which he is entitled, and that is a testimony of its truthfulness. Not only is it the right of every member to know for himself, but every soul, whether member or non-member, can, if he desires, receive a realization that God the Father actually lives, that Jesus Christ is his Son and gave up his life on the cross that we might live, and was resurrected to ascend on high to take his place on the right hand of God.
that Joseph Smith was a prophet of God and that in reality he saw God the Father and his son Jesus Christ and that he became the legal administrator to restore the kingdom of God to the earth. That the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is that kingdom of God on the earth and anyone who makes himself worthy for baptism by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and repentance can gain entrance to that kingdom. And that the Book of Mormon is a true is true as a book, and that a person can get closer to the Lord by following its precepts than by any other book. And that we have today a living oracle, a prophet of God, who stands at the head of this, the Lord's Church, upon the earth. Now, it's not enough to enter into a scholarly discourse on the merits of this declaration or to accept or reject these claims with a wave of the hand. True strength, true peace of mind, and true purpose in life comes when the individual, aside from what others may know, puts himself into a position so that the Lord can reveal to him the absolute truth of these things. It is an experience that denies description, at least to one who has not yet paid the price to receive it. It is the awakening of the mind and the spirit to absolute truth. It is revelation from God. It goes beyond what we can know and understand with our mortal senses. It is a testimony of the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Around the world, literally hundreds of people are gaining this testimony each day. I heard one such person speak just a few days ago. He was a new convert to the Church. He was a young man. He had a young family. He told how his life had literally changed, how the life of his whole family had changed. For the first time, he knew what his relationship to God was and what the Lord expected of him. Because of this, he said he was a better husband and a better father. He knew where he was going and could lead his family in a better way. But most of all, he was happy, happy with a quiet joy that fills the life of every truly converted person. People who look at us from the outside can't understand what makes this Church so alive and its people so faithful and devoted. President Lee truly answered that question in Mexico when he said, as I mentioned, the real strength of the Church is to be measured by the individual testimonies to be found in the total membership of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The way in which a person can gain such a testimony is clearly defined by the Lord. First, let me read from the front piece of the Book of Mormon, wherein the Lord gives the reasons for for this book to come forth to the world. In the second paragraph, we find this quote, And also to the convincing of the Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, manifesting himself unto all nations. So the purpose of the book, then, is to convince the world, both Jew and Gentile, that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God, manifesting himself to all nations. Next we read in the twentieth section of the Doctrine and Covenants, where the Lord, speaking of Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon, says, And gave him power from on high by the means which before were prepared to translate the Book of Mormon, which contains a record of a fallen people and the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles and to the Jews also proving to the world 
that the scriptures are true and that God does inspire man and call them to his holy work in this age and generation as well as in generations of old." Unquote. The Book of Mormon, then, has been brought forth to convince mankind that Jesus is the Christ and that the Holy Scriptures are true and that God again speaks through prophets as he did in ancient times. The contents of the book then becomes the means whereby a person can put himself in harmony with the Spirit of the Lord so he can prove to himself and be convinced that these things are true. How this should be accomplished is outlined by one of the last prophets to write in this ancient book of Scripture. Some 421 years after the birth of Christ, the prophet Moroni, speaking to the people of this generation, gave the following guidelines. Behold, I would exhort you that when you shall receive these things, if it be wisdom in God that you should read them, that you would remember how merciful the Lord hath been unto the children of men from the creation of Adam even down until the time that you receive these things, and ponder it in your hearts. And when ye shall receive these things, I would exhort you that you would ask God the Eternal Father in the name of Christ if these things are not true. And if ye shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ, he will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost and by the power of the Holy Ghost, you may know the truth of all things." Unquote. The three steps, then, in seeking a testimony of the truthfulness of the gospel from the Lord himself are to read and ponder and pray with real intent and sincerity of heart. If a person will prayerfully read the pages of this inspired book and carefully turn over in his mind what he has read and constantly ask the question, could any man have written this book? The promise of the Lord is that, and I quote, He will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. Unquote. If the world would accept this invitation, then they would know for themselves the source of strength of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. For like all of us, they would have gone to the source and would, would then receive their own testimony. And now to those who by heritage find themselves members of the Church but perhaps are not sure of their own testimony. To you I would suggest that it is no sin to admit to yourself that you don't know if in fact you don't know. The error might be, however, in coming to a realization that you don't know and then doing nothing about it. For any person, either member or non-member, who wants to know can know. If at present you live by the faith and testimony of your parents and those around you, that is certainly all right. But seek to reach out and gain your own testimony so you can stand on the strength of your own personal relationship with the Lord. It will help you in solving many of your problems and bring you peace of mind. I would hope that as Latter-day Saints we can strengthen each other in the way which the Lord provided by bearing our testimonies often, at church meetings, at the end of gospel classes, even at fast and testimony meetings. We should renew our efforts to actually express our testimonies and give something more than a passing reference to the truthfulness of the gospel 
With the bearing of testimony comes the spirit of testimony, and all are edified. And finally, may Latter-day Saint parents bear their testimonies to their children in the home. Actually express to your children exactly what it is about the Church that you know to be true. If we think our children know these things just because they live in the same house with us, we are mistaken. We need to say the words so our families can feel the same spirit of testimony that we have felt. Family home evening is an ideal time for this to take place. And may I add that in the family is an ideal place to read the Book of Mormon. We as a family have finished reading the Book of Mormon recently. Although two, are, two of our children are not old enough to read yet, we find that uh, they understand more than we thought they would understand, for the spirit and the truth of this great book enlighten all. What greater heritage can parents give their children than the spiritual heritage which the children have a right to receive? To all men, both member and non-member, comes the invitation from the God of this earth to learn for themselves the truth. May all who have not received that knowledge accept the invitation of the Savior is my prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.